0: into podcasting a bit along with David Nichols who's had even longer dormancy period. So I was at an event, speaking at an event the other evening uh, held by M Pavilion called Time Travel, what our holidays past might tell us about our holidays future and a lot of interesting conversations had within that forum and afterwards and one of the people I met is Loretta Balletta who's a PhD student at the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University and she's interested in some of the topics that my talk crossed over into, including the question of swimming in urban waterways. So I thought I'd start getting back into podcasting by having the chat with Loretta as a podcast. So here we go. Welcome Loretta. And we met at an event at what's called M Pavilion, which is this kind of thing that's a physical thing and a, uh, I guess a series of events and discussions and, and just a, an organisation, M Pavilion which this year was held at the Botanic Gardens opposite the National Gallery in this kind of, I wouldn't know how to describe that structure. It's neither a building nor a, well, it's a pavilion, isn't it? It's an angular structure. And the event that I spoke at was called Time Travel, Can Inspiration from Our Past Save Our Holiday Future? That was organized by Helen Rowe amongst others. And I was talking about my interest in swimming pool, swimming pool rules, and the closure of country swimming pools in particular. And Loretta spoke to me afterwards and was interested in some of the crossovers, particularly around some of the history of public swimming pools and the fact that they originated in rivers, a lot of the time river enclosures, and then became the concrete swimming pools that are now being closed. Because Loretta's PhD, uh, which is about two years into, it's not exclusively about swimming and it's not exclusively about swimming in rivers, but that's one of your case studies. As I understand it, Loretta, you are looking at the push for the swimmable, and you use the word birarung, right, the swimmable yarra. Yes. Do you want to explain how you came to this topic and and why you came to the event at uh, M Pavilion?
1: Okay. So the way I came to this particular interest in a swimmable Birrarung, which is the uh, traditional owner's uh, word for the Yarra River, the way I came to that is that I was looking for A case study which in some ways is working toward the regeneration of place and community and there's something about swimming actually getting into the water that has a lot of resonance for people and from talking to local entrepreneurs and people in community who are interested in this idea of regeneration swimming seemed to come together with it because it has a focus on the health and well-being not only of the swimmers but of the actual place so to be able to swim in the Birrarung which very few people are interested in doing at the moment we need to feel safe and feel like it's clean and healthy and at the moment Melbourne's perception is that the river is dirty, unclean and not a good place for swimming. And my interest in a healthy river is that the river is considered uh, the bloodline of our city. And if the river's not healthy, our city can't be healthy. And so it builds from there what's this case study got to do with my research? Basically, what I'm looking at is what is tourism's contribution towards regenerating cities? And there is a movement uh, globally which is looking at regenerative development approaches. And so that's basically looking at drawing from Indigenous perspectives, knowledges and practices, as well as Western science, coming together to start to rethink and change the way we relate with nature.
0: Yeah. So the term regenerative, is that exclusively referring to waterways or it's nature, it's the relationship of nature and our relationship to nature? Yeah,
1: all, all nature, land, water, uh, waterways, uh, communities, cultures. So regenerate, reviving and rest, uh, restoring, but also then building the capability of places and communities to be able to then self-sustain And it's looking at more from a whole systems perspective rather than going at it from a really linear way of thinking, a mechanistic way of thinking, where we identify a small little problem and then create and provide a solution to it. Really, this is turning it on its head and going, what's the potential of this place? What's the capability that's required to be able to meet that potential? And so coming back to the river, What's the potential of our city having a healthy, thriving river that we all have a reciprocal relationship with rather than something that we dump our waste in, which is what's happened in the past, and think of as a drain to to carry our waste away from us? How about if we built a relationship with the river where we can actually nurture it? Bringing that back to tourism, tourism's a sector that is very reliant on our river being beautiful and healthy. In the city, if you notice, a lot of uh, businesses and a lot of tourism uh, activities occur uh, on the river, next to the river, or photos, tourist photos of uh, Melbourne feature the river.
0: Oh, I would suggest um, that's sort of a, a relatively recent and, and perhaps the work you're doing is a much more fundamental shift and whether it's a continuation or, or a change from that. But the fact that Melbourne has become river facing is something over the last few decades. So if we went back to the 1970s and where places like South Bank or even Docklands, but also just all along that river says with the ex- exception of the Botanic Gardens, I suppose, that stretch of river was industrial and industrial right. meaning often kind of um, purposefully facing away from the river and putting waste in the river and I don't know what the low point of the um, river's history the Bureau's history is but from a planning point of view that shift started late 1970s partly because of downturn and manufacturing and and thinking about maybe somewhat dormant industrial spaces and, and long river frontages and how they might be reused but also part of a shift to maybe make Melbourne more of a, a tourism city and a world city and attract people but our, of course our river isn't Sydney harbour is it so it's a, it's a bit That's of natives there so some of them do face the river but you know there's a limit to that how many people would think of, it, of the Yarra or the Birrung as beautiful or beautiful enough to swim in. It's not a common way of thinking about it, is it?
1: That's right. So very few think of our river, particularly uh, in the area that I'm interested in, which is between Dykes Falls and Docklands. Uh, and it's actually uh, illegal to swim there because it's designated for boating at the moment. So Lots of re rethinking, but this work is trying to complement and, and support uh, a campaign that's been going on for at least 10 years. And so some of uh, your listeners uh, will be familiar with the Yarra Pools campaign. Uh, there was a bid to actually build a pool adjacent to the river that had a filtration system uh, using the river water. But at the moment... Um, that hasn't been able to go ahead for various reasons, but the intention hasn't gone away and interest is definitely growing. There's also, um, there are active groups of swimmers in Melbourne further up the river at places like Deep Rock and also in Warrandyte. Uh, there are people who are actively swimming and I'm just getting to know the group at Deep Rock. They are very passionate and have a very loving relationship with the river and are keen to see it improve its health and contribute to that. And so I'm really interested in that as well as part of this, that we're, as a city, people are starting to change. We're starting to change our mindsets. There is a definite growth in in that. And it's not unusual. I mean, these movements are growing across the world in places like Paris, Austin, New York, London, Copenhagen is often put up as the kind of gold star example to aspire to, where communities are either lobbying or actively already swimming in their rivers.
0: In urban rivers is the thing here. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, I mean Paris is of course intrinsically romantic, but it's something else it is is it doesn't have a fabulous climate and it's not fabulously clean place. So there is sort of listeners who are thinking that Melbourne is a lost cause for that. Those cities you mentioned seem have a similar trajectory in terms of the level of pollution, the level of urbanization, the level of I guess, degradation of urban waterways, and yet these are places that have, uh, as you said, There's kind of two things I'm hearing from you. One is there's these organised infrastructure campaigns and involvement of government, um, sometimes from a tourism point of view, sometimes uh, recreation, to build infrastructure on urban waterways for swimming. And then there's people that are actually just starting doing it themselves and kind of taking it back. Those two things kind of coming together. And I, I think it's fair to say they're still pretty fringe ideas. Like you were telling me about the Deep Rock group. I think it's worth maybe having a bit more background for, for listeners around that. Deep Rock is one of many former sw- swimming pools along the Boerwurrung in, in Melbourne and similarly other rivers around Australia and Victoria where I guess since colonization, there was there was always kind of a culture of swimming in natural waterways, usually masculine. I think, and that's some of the things I've been reading about is this kind of tension or um, interesting legacy around river freshwater swimming was usually the domain of men and boys. And some of the earliest accounts you get in colonization of swimming in urban waterways is usually around nuisance complaints around nuisance and obscenity because the normal practice was for men and boys to swim in the in the nude in rivers, and then you'd have people going past and you know, they had bylaws and things to prohibit swimming after 7am so people wouldn't see that kind of stuff. But that early history then became more like both genders and a bit more organised, so ladders and um, pontoons and things like that, infrastructure on the river there where that was the predecessor to a, an actual swimming pool and the Yarra had Irung had several of these. Alphington would be one example and Deep Rock, I'm not sure exactly when it started, but it's somewhere up, where is it again? It's sort of near Ivanhoe or... Um,
1: it's just, it's about a five-minute walk up from Dites Falls right. going towards.
0: And they've got, a, they've got a historic interpretation sign. They're like, hey, yes. please to swim here. And there's these kind of cut stone steps and platforms yes. and things like that. It's presented to you as, and when I saw it, and I must say I was tempted to have a swim, but I had that thought like, would I be like then in the papers, idiot swims in Yarra. But... <laughs> it's as i understand that they have a historical interpretation but there's an active group who swim there uh, There's are there maybe a hundred of them how many people are involved and did they sort of come back to this site or have they got some kind of connection to it what's the story there
1: yeah, so my understanding, and I, um, again, I'm I'm just starting to get to know the group, but my understanding is that there's always been people who have swum at that spot, but there've also been people who have walked past it for many years not knowing that it would be safe to swim because there is that really dominant perception that it's not safe to swim in the river. So um, during lockdown, when it the need to um, have open space and, and natural places to
0: to be in. Um, partly, defined, in. The pools the yeah. were all closed during lockdown. So if you wanted yeah. to know it, it was the beach or the river.
1: Exactly. And, you know, people were also confined to a five kilometre uh, radius uh, during some periods in the lockdown. And during winter, uh, some people started swimming in the river because they had needed that outlet and so it just started to become a thing and reclaiming the river
0: that's an interesting a good choice of word reclaiming um because i guess it again this is what i was speaking at about m pavilion and what my research interest around this is is what that historical legacy is how how these kind of practices were closed down and then to some extent whether you could reclaim them or what, what would be the point of that and So I'm not precisely sure about deep rock, when it stopped being um, widespread to swim there. But if it's anything like a lot of other, the trajectory for some river enclosures, and sometimes they're called pre-Olympic interwar pools, but they would either be upgraded into Olympic pools, concrete pools. So that would be the case, say, in Coburg Olympic pool, used to be just swimming in the Merry Creek and was sort of a dammed off area there or say, just to pick a place, Rochester is a, a town near here. They had a, a very well-used river swimming pool, but then post-Second World War, various fundraising and so on to build a, a concrete swimming pool, usually on the same side or very close to it, and partly partly through aspiration to modernity and having a, a more a modern swimming pool, but also sometimes there were issues around drowning. That was kind of the motivation to the uh, swimming pools at all in Australia was learn to swim and to to try and stem uh, the common people commonly drowning in rivers and and creeks and things like that. So there was a sense I know in Coburg's case and others that some people did drown in the river swimming holes and then there was this would be safer etc but then another fate for the river swimming holes wasn't to be upgraded so to speak it was to become various levels of illegal or abandoned or derelict. So you had and I'm sort of in the process of fact-checking this but at various points in Melbourne's History, uh, river swimming became illegal. You mentioned that it's illegal now between Dights Falls and the, the mouth of the river. Partly that's due to the boating. I think early in that 1960s, and in a lot of cities worldwide, it became actually illegal to swim in urban rivers uh, because of pollution concerns. And also, um, there was an association, certainly, I've been researching swimming in the swimming culture in the UK, in Britain, and that uh, there was a sense, not well f- founded, I might add, that. Swimming in rivers was associated with polio, the polio epidemics at the time. So they, river swimming was shut down and quite actively in that case, the sense that it was, it was dangerous for children that they might contract polio that way. And even after those things, sometimes the laws are no longer valid. Sometimes the pollution is no longer there. But that sense that it's dangerous and disgusting is still there. So to what extent people are kind of prevented from swimming in rivers because it's illegal versus they just don't do it anymore. It's happened over the last sort of 50, 60 years that it went from being fairly common to being a niche thing coming back. And it's interesting to kind of look at, again, Britain. In their case, freshwater swimming was very very much criminalised because of the polio association and other issues around, I mean, peak points of water pollution in the 1960s. But there's a, possibly because of that criminality, the wild swimming movement, and it really is a movement, and you can get these books like Wild Swimming England where it's encouraging people to take their own matters into their own hands and just go swimming in these places that you otherwise wouldn't have thought to swim in. Some of them were used to be very popular swimming holes. Some of them are kind of quite natural waterways. And in, in Britain's case, these places, it's sometimes actually illegal, either because of those laws or because of they've got different private property rules there. So in Australia, most rivers are public public land and, and the associated Land alongside it, but in the UK, there's a lot of rivers that are privately owned, and, and the rights to rights to access them are quite tightly controlled because they're owned by landowners and they sell those rights to f- people for fishing, uh, fly fishing, and things. So it's it's quite edgy to go swimming in these places. So wild swimming in that context is it's almost uh, what's the word advocacy work to go swimming in these waterways in Australia. I don't think we have quite that level of illegality, but it's certainly unusual to go back to these places. And I'd like to add if in terms of the Yarra, I was just looking for it on my Melways Edition 1, which you can access online. 1966 edition of the Melways, they've kindly digitised. And I'm looking for the right page number, but Deep Rock would be on there. But there's another one on there where, well, basically, I can't remember the name of it, but to cut to the chase, where the Eastern Freeway crosses the Yarra now, the wrong now, I have to keep reminding myself to go back there was a swimming hole as well, a swimming pool, and they just went barreled straight through it. (laughs) So that gives you a sense of the the kind of priorities of the 1960s. I'll just interject with a bit of a correction or fact-checking here is that I later realised that the Melways shows deep rock swimming hole, the one that Loretta is interested in, and that the Eastern Freeway goes right near it but not over it. Um, And Loretta, back in time here, goes on to talk about the fact that the Yarra is significantly rearranged and straightened to accommodate the freeway. So don't go looking for that other swimming hole. We're talking about the same one.
1: They've done a lot of straightening of the river mm-hmm. to accommodate uh, to accommodate uh, the freeways, but also, mm-hmm. I mean, early on in the 1830s, they blew up the
0: natural waterfalls. Yeah, and that, at the um, M Pavilion talk, Dean, one of the other guests, who's He's a... Um, sorry, tourism leader, he was talking about how there's actually a project to bring the, the falls back to the river, is that right? What he was saying at M Pavilion, that there's an art installation
1: uh, being planned to actually bring back an experience, a representation and experience yeah. of, of the falls at the site where they were, which is Queen's
0: Bridge. And we also had, um, so the, there's these swimming holes that were blown up Straightening and channelization. So the Mooney Ponds Creek is probably the f- <laughs> worst case scenario. Although there's again maybe there's a bit of crossover well, similarity here around people that yeah, are pushing to regenerate the Mooney Ponds. Exactly, Creek. Mm. and
1: that's another interesting case in point. Not not around swimming, but um, there's actually been a, a successful community campaign to pull up the concrete yeah. that that made uh, quite big sections of the Mooney Ponds Creek into into basically a drain and so they're actually going to be pulling up the concrete but mm-hmm. so there is this movement towards because it's recognition of the damage that a lot of these modifications to the rivers has has made towards the ecosystems.
0: and there's also so, an element of yeah. recognition of damage but this is a similarity I, I see with the mooney ponds Creek and and these other kinds of projects around the and internationally it's not purely from a um, ecological point of view that there's something kind of for lack of a better word there's something selfish about it there's a sense that actually we collectively would be better off through this. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's really, really clear that it's in this is intimately connected with our health and wellbeing.
0: Yeah. And there's something amazing about um, again at the end pavilion when Dean, Dean Dean did a reading from one of the early colonial accounts of the or the site that is now the CBD of Melbourne. I mean, I've heard that one a couple of times before, but it's, it is worth, I think, making sure people hear it more. It's, it's written from the point of view of someone who's just like, and wonderfully, now we have this city, but it's describing this place and the way it looked, the grasslands, the river, the forest, the birds, everything. It, it sounds like something, perhaps to put it crudely, it sounds like something out of a tourist book, like visit this untouched wonderland and then it's like this was this place where we've put a city now and there's a strong desire, at least amongst people involved in this or sort of people that come to these talks, where it's not only... uh, I think maybe a few decades ago you would read that account of what um, the site of Melbourne looked like or felt, sounded like um, before the the ravages of colonisation and think, Um, oh, what a sad loss. But now there's a sense maybe of empowerment that actually you know we can take some of that back
1: yeah and yeah so beyond nostalgia and you know tourist pleasure this is actually the process of going back to understand what's the story of this place both in terms of what was there the plants the animals what 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 was thing what were things like how did pre-settlement what was life like how what was this place that we call uh, Melbourne, which was called Nam beforehand, what, what was this place, and what was it? Uh, how did it contribute to life? And then bringing in, what was the swimming culture? How did people live? What what can we learn from that, and then take and bring bring into our collective futures? Because obviously the city's there, the place is very different to what it was two hundred and fifty years ago. But what can we learn, and what are, what are the elements that we can revive together? to be able to have a healthy flourishing place and community, you know, seven generations from now.
0: And your supervision team kind of brings these different perspectives together. And it's sort of a new niche area, right? But you have supervision from the field of actually urban transitions, which is his own research, and also um, an indigenous scholar and an economist. And these sort of, how do you bring, what are these different kind of perspectives bring to the topic and, and what are some of the tensions and synergies there between those different ways of looking at a question?
1: Yeah, so regenerative tourism is a very, very new application to uh, what's, what's called uh, the regenerative development approach, which has been around as long as sustainability. And uh, regeneration uh, was getting developed uh, in the 1960s and 70s, but more in the field of agriculture. And then it's it's been adopted in economics and also uh, fields such as architecture. And just in the last ten years or so, um, there have been some pioneers around the world who have started to think about how can tourism contribute to this uh, regenerative approach. And so, in me doing this PhD, I, I've I've got a um, background in tourism development and social work, actually. Looking to apply this and understand this regenerative tourism approach, I thought, what, what better place than to sit within a Centre for Urban Transitions, which is really looking at what is the future of our cities and our places? How can we become more sustainable? My supervision team um, has come together with Nikki Franzikaki. Um, She has a sustainability science background and so very much looking at urban transitions but also nature-based solutions, which has a lot of uh, resonance with uh, regenerative approaches. Andy Nygaard is a social economist, so really looking at how can we think about economic approaches that promote sustainability? And also Dr. Andrew Peters, who is a, an indigenous scholar based at Swinburne as well, um, looking at how do, how can indigenous perspectives and knowledges, but also indigenous research methodologies contribute to developing better ways forward. So coming together, Whilst it can be quite challenging uh, because it's not coming from one discipline, um, it actually opens things up way more and, and helps me think about this at a much more holistic level because really this concept is trying to bring Western science and Indigenous
0: approaches and Indigenous sciences to sit, to sit together somehow. I'm interested in coming back to the specifics of the swimmable part. Who are the kinds of groups you're speaking to or interested in speaking to? Who's pushing for swimmable Birrarung and what kind of ideas are they drawing on? You mentioned two already of the group that swims at Deep Rock. And I'm going to, I know I don't know if you noticed, I had a distracted look on my face. I am looking back <laughs> at the Melways. My memory is wrong, but it's perhaps illustrative here. The 1960s um, Melways shows, it actually shows the Deep Rock swimming hole here. It's marked. So that's where the uh, the um, freeway goes, and it's actually your swimming hole that I was looking at. It's called Deep Rock Swimming Basin. So and so that,
1: just the, that curve just before it, it yeah. um, is actually low, not as steep now.
0: So this has been changed. But it, the spot where I was thinking there was another swimming pool actually says Council Depot, which is kind of, and if you look uh, up and down the river here yeah. in 1966, it gives you a sense of just, Perhaps that it is interesting like just how shocking it is to us now to look at from a where at least in a, a point where we take some interest or pride in waterways like the Yarra or yeah. creeks but really in the 1960s the prevailing uses that are marked in here are tip Yes,
1: and because also, um, I've done some work with series, and that was a tip, you know, right on the river, and um, but there is a website, and I can share it with you when I find it, um, that um compares. You just go across the screen and compares what the map of 1945 to now. I use that one.
0: Well, worth Have you it seen that, that one? Yeah. I wish. You had yeah. Drawback for that website is like you just wish that you could look at it Google Street View like front on as well because it's and for this kind of topic particularly so because it's the kind of thing you can see from above and you can pick out you know just what kind of noxious uses were situated along these spots. Yeah. Sorry to, to yeah. go back to you because I distracted. Yeah, go for, for it. The, who is who? Are you, who have you spoken to? What are their motivations? How how are they putting their case for us, and will be around the main the main person that I've
1: been working with in this kind of iteration of the project that's trying to connect up and work towards a, a more of a collective impact approach with these existing groups that are that are coming up and and out from different perspectives. I'm working primarily with a. Well, not primarily, but one one of the kind of key people that I'm working with is a a social enterprise called Regeneration Projects. And so they're looking, and their business is about assisting businesses to actually adopt a regeneration approach. And because to date, what has been predominant with this this work around assumable Birrarung has been community groups and government getting engaged in this idea. But business has played a relatively minor role. So given business is such a strong stakeholder, from many perspectives in this. part of the work is actually engaging. And so the project's broader than just my focus on tourism, but definitely tourism are quite significant stakeholders in that catchment that I was talking about before between Dykes Falls and Docklands. But the other group that are partners with this project are the Yarra River Keepers Association. For them, their whole role is around promoting the health of the river and they see it as a no-brainer, this idea that if we swam in the river, we could have a improved well-being for ourselves, but also for our visitors and for the river itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're, keenly, they're, they're quite keenly involved. And they, they are very a very active group in um, advocacy for the health of the river, but also getting involved in cleanups, tree planting other activities
0: that are actively working to clean up the river yeah that's right i think i've I've been involved in at least one of those where you can go out which is not like swimming but sort of a new perspective on the city you can go out on one of their cleanup days in a um a kayak and yeah. um, toodle around and in the process pick up garbage so i mean that cuts both ways on the one hand you're kind of like look at this stuff i pulled out of uber <laughs> so, yeah but it's also you know there's so many people involved in cleaning cleaning the river and it it is a a bit empowering Empowering. powering certain things that are beyond the I guess the reach of groups like that but maybe the the ideas that they promote are progressively working towards and it's like that I did an interview for this podcast a few years ago about with someone from Yarra Pools in that case and similar to what you're saying it's The idea of swimming in the river, it's a kind of a benchmark if it's swimmable, then it must be very clean and sort of something tangible. And a lot of that swimmability or that pollution comes down to not so much the major um, point source pollution, like in 56 years ago factories putting ink that still happens, of course, but that's not the major concern now it's more. um, Is that correct? It's litter. Dog poo and rubbish going into the river, and yeah. um, petrol and things like that running off the streets.
1: Yeah, sewage, um, sewage that comes from upper reaches yep. of the system, you know, creeks, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the the freeway goes yeah. over the river. The freeway follows the river, and mm. so there's a lot of debris from cars and road. Mm. Mm. That does pollute, so there's a range, range of things. I'm not, that's I suppose not my expertise
2: mm.
1: um, around uh, what it would take to clean up the river, but from the reports I've read and what I've found out, because there's, there's a rich kind of story to be gathered um, just online. I mean, one of the things that I'm even looking at is attitudes of visitors when they come and visit mm-hmm. our trip advisor. A lot of people think that it's beautiful to look at but wouldn't dare swim in it
0: mm-hmm. what um, and then I guess it'd be interesting to, to see like what do they think there's a sort of spectrum of like perception around swimming and and dirt and safety and so on and that follows its own kind of uh, various kind of causes of that but there's a kind of irony where at a time when people used to swim in in the river actively and and it wasn't you know a taboo or something that would sort of be surprising probably was when the river was a lot dirtier but people are concerned i say this about public transport as well it's not just concerned about actual germs it's what i call cooties just (laughs) don't like the sound of it just i can't i can't see it but I don't like the idea of it. So the Yarra is murky for one thing. It's That's just silt, the yeah. brown. It's the upside down river, isn't that what they call it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've grown up kind of mostly swimming in swimming pools and beaches where I can see my feet when I'm yep. in the yep. water. I, you know, in doing this research authentically...
0: Oh, you did swim in
2: the Yarra, felt, didn't you? <laughs>
1: yeah, I felt I needed to go and experience that and, and it was quite interesting and I actually tried to get my teenage children to come with me and they said no way it's disgusting and they're not doing that so they're totally into that whole idea that you know our river is is not to be gone near Mm -hmm. and and I don't even know where they got that from that idea but anyway so I went off on my own and it was it took a bit to kind of get my head around actually stepping in because I didn't know what I was stepping into I couldn't see and and just even, you know, concern about how it would go and what it would feel like. And but it was quite an incredible experience and was and when I got over the kind of oh my feet have got you know the touching squishy mud. Um, when I got my head around that, I actually quite enjoyed it. And also just connecting with the current of the river. Mm-hmm. It is an alive. Living entity, and that's actually been legislate um, recognised in legislation. Not many people are aware that the Birrarung has been recognised as a living entity from Mount Baw right up to the Docklands, all t- two hundred forty two kilometres. And so that, and there has been a statutory body created called the Birrarung Council. And so that that is um, that is comprised of. Uh, traditional owners as well as um, non-Indigenous people um, who have a role to advise government about policy Mm -hmm. around Mm the management of the river, which is quite a...
0: Significant step forward. I'm still sort of focusing, like swimming. What does that mean for swimming? Because you know, yeah, in a few ways, like swimming is ultimately just recreational activity,
2: right?
0: It's not a top so, priority, so yeah, if you're prioritizing the river, then maybe swimming is pretty marginal concern. But then, if you're thinking, if you're willing to immerse yourself in the river, then you 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 want it to be healthy,
1: and that's part of, I suppose, the the process of me undertaking this research is trying to discover what what do different stakeholders think about this and, and what are their attitudes and, and is this what what people want for our city?
0: A, a facet of urban change is it is often very niche groups niche interests that will shape the, the city in, a, in fairly fundamental ways so right and most people don't want to swim in the river that it's possible that this is I mean if you're looking again internationally, then um, it's possible this will become a norm in, yep. in the next few decades. Yep.
1: And if you go to, you know, in, in Europe, there's a whole body of sustainability transitions research that's, that looks at how um, niche innovations mm. then grow to become um, main, they, they disrupt what yeah. the kind of mainstream dominant regime is. They use the term regime. To then actually, then that becomes the new, you know, the new way. And there's various drivers for it. And we've seen that in other areas. And there's a lot of research, for example, in energy transitions. And so, as water, as recognition around um, the importance of water um, being healthy and drinkable. Not that we're saying here, but you know that we have to have our healthier water systems to survive as a species humans need to have healthy water um, for a whole lot of reasons beyond drinking. That will be one of the drivers for healthier waterways.
0: And there's a place-based aspect to as well. I'm thinking again of um, Rooney Ponds and some other yes. examples where, I mean, my interest in this partly is from that planning point of view and sort of interventions in, in places, but something that seems to spur on these kinds of um, unexpected or unimaginable transitions changes is when people start to see in practice in their own place what this would look like and what this could mean and then they start to get locally involved in the you don't want the mary creek to look like that you've seen it could look like this or feel like this and and then that granular change shifts up And, and this is where the history part can come in as well around and i don't want to foreclose the idea that any of this stuff is going to come to fruition but A lot of transitions theory and the reading I've been doing around urban waterways, it's often historical because that historical perspective can, I argue anyway, help you think what seemed unimaginable became normal and then you look at how that happened. Um, And we're talking a lot about mid-20th century Melbourne, you know, just how disgusting and how um, desecrated in a way the waterways were. And now that's totally, even if you won't swim in it, you're certainly not going to be like, casually throwing cars into the, the merry creek like was exactly like what was happening yeah and some of the transition theory have written about um sewer, the introduction of sewerage systems in the 19th century and that actually was the health of the rivers was a, a factor in that and these kind of accounts of i'm thinking about melbourne the, the introduction of the underground drainage system the, the sewerage system we have now you know it took longer than many cities to come about for various reasons. Some people put that down to our fragmented government at the time, a lot of squabbling local councils and a lot of um, competing interests that didn't want to commit. But some of the points at which there was a big shift in legislation, a big shift in public expectations were these inquiries into sanitation. and That involved one of them in, I think, 1880, 1880s. Someone went in a boat, a rowboat, and went up the two rivers, the what was then the Saltwater and the Yarra, and just gave this visceral, visceral account of just how revolting it was and then connecting that like it's sludge it's blood it's dead animals it's just every known thing we don't want in here okay that's bad enough but also it's making you sick it's called you know whether that yeah. was true or not some of it was true the, the, the link to cholera is true some of the other ideas that are that smelly places is is bad for your health and my asthma theory was discredited but it had enough momentum that that led to changes that at the time were like well we couldn't possibly stop you know putting all our uh, foul tanneries you know like animal pelts and things and that did happen and then sort of a new norm of of cleanliness became normal and achieved and that transition towards um sanitation was totally transformative but also unimaginable at the time and people kind of stumbled into this, a new way of relating to the river, which again is something we're we're not, um, it didn't solve everything because it's also the situation we're in now is that kind of technological relationship to the river where it was about cleaning it and treating things like that. So the regenerative approach isn't so much about controlling it. It's
1: It's about creating the conditions to thrive and so... And so some of it might be technical solutions, some of it might be about um, sustaining restoration, but where regeneration really comes into being, and um, and Bill Reid, who's one of the kind of leaders of this regenerative development approach, he often says the deliverable of regeneration is increased capacity to support ecosystems and human systems so when humans when humans when we become more capable our attitudes change our skills build our ways of working together and relating with the rest of nature uh, changes then we are able to then align ourselves with those living systems rather than the mechanistic kind of machine mentality which is we have to control it we have to turn rivers into drains Mm -hmm. so then we can control them but then there's all these other negative impacts whereas how do we rather than trying to control outcomes all the time actually work on building conditions and potential where tourism comes in is it actually really helps to educate and help change that mindset and actually really opens up people to seeing a different way of living and relating. And so some of these uh, tourism, um, regenerative tourism initiatives around the world are really focused on trying to put these ideas into practice. And one of the very, the, the first regenerative tourism resort that I've known, the very first one that was built in 2005 was really focused, it's called Playa Viva in Mexico, really focused on regenerating the land and the waterways there um, and, and changing the visitor experience so that they could actually really connect
0: Yeah, the river part of this is still like but no yuck i think um a good parallel or kind of surprising example of this probably not thought consciously at the time of as regenerative but thinking about bondi and sydney's beaches so i'm aware of some of that i'm not until 1990 and certainly between, through most of the 20th century sydney's sewers directly just raw sewage went straight into several beaches including bondi and i just sort of pulled up an article about it there's a picture of a man swimming through sewage plume at sydney beach in 1990 and it was a community campaign in part in 1990 to move the direct sewer outlets in sydney away from some of those urban beaches into deep ocean outfalls and and more treatment involved as well there's complicated stuff around just how treated or not but Here's an account saying, before the deep ocean outfalls, Sydney's sewage was pumped off cliffs near some of Sydney's most famous beaches. Manly was a septic tank. It was dreadful. There were huge surface plumes and the beaches adjacent were really polluted. And so there's a study into, you know, the effects over 20 or 30 years of moving the sewer outfalls away from the urban beaches and further out what has that meant for the quality of the the sea water in Sydney and the quality of the beaches? But also, what's been the benefits for tourism and people's perceptions? Um, mm-hmm. And they said like just bazil- <laughs> it says I've said bazillion dollars, but said several billion dollars. And to draw the parallel here again, it's thirty years ago saying you swam at Bondo was a joke. It would be like I mean, people did it, but it was like for people that were unperturbed by swimming in other people's poo, basically. Yeah. And now yeah. it's like the absolute benchmark of... Um, yeah, absolutely,
1: of mm. absolutely. The other uh, example, again, from Sydney is the Parramatta River. So there's a whole load of work that's happening to actually regenerate that river. And I'm going up, uh, they're offering a two-day kind of seminar workshop in April that I'm going to. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but um, they they are actually incorporating Indigenous um, perspectives and knowledges into the develop the redevelopment of uh, those waterways that actually promote a more respectful and reciprocal relationship between humans and the river. So that's an, another one to watch.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is happening, Torrens River
0: in in
1: adelaide oh,
0: yeah. i was like oh yeah because they yeah amazing um, in brisbane swimming this, this well in
1: mm-hmm. it's not just yeah it's just not it's not just melbourne it's it's a it's actually a whole load of people dotted all around the world so yes it's niche mm-hmm. but it's growing and,
0: and at at, at, again like another disgusting i know we have to wind up a little bit the Thames in London, which is probably one of the more repulsive urban rivers of the world, and had this starring role in the introduction of urban sanitation projects as well. But despite having been cleaned up a bit through that, those sewage projects of the 19th century was very polluted in the 20th century. And as part of that wild swimming movement I described before, it is becoming more common to, again, in this case, sort of um, without the uh, indigenous connection but still revisiting much older practices in in place. There's a return to swimming in the Thames and I've pulled up a survey here that now 20%, 7% of Londoners have swum in the River Thames. And that's wow. increased over the last few I mean, can't see exactly, but the last few decades that's increased, partly through there's a few popular books about people uh, swimming in the Thames and, you know, living to sell the, the tail as well. Also yeah. an interesting point here is that, um, I mean, my research is often focused on specifically on public swimming pools, which despite being kind of cleaner, a lot of people wouldn't swim in a public swimming pool again, because they think it has have foodies. And it says here that uh, a lot of people think that the Thames is about as uh, acceptable as swimming in a public pool. So <laughs> that kind of advantage that, um, yeah. wow. If uh, people are going off, you know, public swimming pools because so they I think they're a bit of a yeah. uh, antiquated uh, soup of yeah. grossness. Um, you, know,
1: you know what was a bit the biggest surprise for me, which I didn't mention before, in terms of my experience of deep rock. Hmm. When I got out, I felt like I'd just had a shower and that I was really clean.
0: Yes, that's a, a for listeners.
1: I do not get that when I go to a, a chlorine filled pool,
0: and I've got it into my sort of. Uh, research but also hobby of visiting swimming pools and increasingly swimming holes as well like I know that and that's part of the draw it becomes addictive and there's people that get a lifetime yes. addiction to this kind of, of open water freshwater swimming even swimming in the ocean is of course probably the benchmark of the best swimming experience for most but I even so I would choose a freshwater swimming because it's completely it's like having a somewhere between a, a shower a bath it's um Totally energizing feeling, and again, yeah. in, despite the fact that the river is murky and brown, you come out of it and feel uh, cleaner than when you went in, whether that's a perception or not. Cooling, and it's <laughs> pooling, um, and it, it's just this kind of you know relationship to water that you don't get out of a public pool. As much as I advocate for them, if I swim in a public pool, which I regularly do, it's like I feel like I should have a shower afterwards, and you probably should because of the chlorine, which is what makes it clean you know in a um a technical sense but it's also it's quite abrasive uh chemical Freshwater pools there's places and I could suggest a few if you're not up to the Yarra places like Creswick I mentioned at that end pavilion talk this is a a freshwater swimming hole that survived intact for 120 years for whatever reason yeah wow um, not not being it has been shut at times but it's it's still um, in active use now um, and the, the pool kind of infrastructure still there. Most people would be up to swimming in the Ovens River in Bright because it really is a much cleaner river and clearer to look at as well. It doesn't have that silted up look. I swim in the Camp Aspie, yeah, which I know Kyneton has the remains of uh, its pre-Olympic swimming pool on the Camp Aspie. I don't know if anyone swims in it now, um, but it would be interested, maybe there's a bit of a return to that. And that whole
1: experience of swimming, why swimming, like what's that giving people... Um, And what and how does it change their relationship with nature? Yeah, because of the experience is so fascinating.
0: The subjectivity of it and how you evoke histories and your own histories and other people's histories and you know there's a problematic elements to that, but it's certainly um, one of the most uh, prevalent. I guess literature around swimming, urban swimming as well, is subjective. It's someone saying, "I have a lifetime of swimming, and, and then I did this, and this is how I experienced it." And there's a kind of philosophical element to thinking about swimming because you are uh, people write about how you're floating, of course, but you're also sensorily de- deprived in a lot of ways. You um you can't hear anything a lot of the time, and for some reason that makes you feel more at at home than you did before. Of course, then there's people that I'm skipping over this, people that drown and so on, That's still a real, pre, a real issue. You can overestimate your um, abilities and it's a real danger to swimming in some of these places. Yeah. And drowning in, yeah. in Victoria is, is that record highs again and yeah. the most common kind of place to drown is in a, a fresh water.
1: And that goes back to that whole capability. I think we've lost some of those or we've kind of forgotten some of those skills around how to... Because I was actually talking to my mum Who's eighty six, uh, living in Italy, uh, growing up in Italy, and being in the river was just very commonplace. It was an everyday kind of
0: thing. Mm, you know? that's right. um, I don't know personally if that's right, but yes, it's it's common in in biographical accounts. People did it all the time. Whether yeah. it was actually safe, the fact is that most many people did yeah. it and um, didn't yeah. think it was unusual.
1: And it's, it's yeah, and it's interesting because I um I I lived and worked in Cambodia for a couple of years um and uh, worked in a children's um development organisation and when I was looking at the UN data or the, the UNICEF data, looking at what the primary causes of death for children were, um for under fives the, the one of the top five was drowning. Mm-hmm. Because they were um, toddlers were drowning at home because they, yeah. in the water vessels where they were collecting for their household use, but from six to twelve, it was um, the six to twelve year olds were drowning because they were going to the river to collect mm-hmm. water, and they didn't know how to. Mm. And so the intervention there was to teach people to swim.
0: The historical connection there in Australia is that we had similar kind of, I don't know, statistics, but certainly accounts. in um I can't speak to Indigenous people, but early colonial period, a lot of children drowned either for, in wells or collecting water or they're just so mm. hot and they went for a swim. And then the, the classic tragedy would be one child would get into trouble and the other one tried to save yeah. them. So they often have a multiple drownings in these. Yeah waterways. So um, in in Australia, you had the introduction of learn to swim campaigns in school so and Frank Barry Repair um, introduced this funded this program of learn to swim, which meant um, the idea was that all school children would learn how to swim because then you know, there's this intrinsic benefit, but it's also likely to reduce the the drowning um, prevalence of yeah. and, and we're sort of quite quite a lot to be proud of there, but then we sort of unpacked mm. a bit of it because it's no mm. I don't think it's still compulsory in school.
1: Um, okay. But also we primarily learn to swim in pools, or in pools. We don't learn. To, there's a little bit about the beach, but definitely I don't recall anything being said about rivers.
0: No, there isn't. I know there's a return to this and in, in a um, northern Victorian context that's it's interesting to note because I'm situated up in regional Victoria along the, the Camp Aspie. There was recently um, one of the local life-saving swim schools was putting in a specific skills for fresh water, partly in response to the recognition that's still the most common place to drown and what are the skills here and what are the kind of things you don't, notwithstanding the fact that actually over the lockdown Over the last couple of years, a record numbers of children have lost swim lessons and aren't knowing how to swim, and that's contributing to the drowning as well. Because pools are being closed, people don't have the the skills, but even with the skills you get in a chlorinated pool, often a heated chlorinated pool, does that really translate to swimming in the ocean or in fresh water? some cases yes in some cases absolutely no just even the temperature people get quite a shock from yep. the cold water the visibility understanding currents and things like that so there right. was at least one program being introduced of course, there's still programs like this around the ocean and I mean we're kind of focusing more on freshwater here but if you look at drowning statistics its capability sometimes it's people coming from context different country where there's even less learn to swim programs they can't swim at all and yet they go to these beautiful beaches and then and drown and then it's people that are, are underestimating the conditions. And this is a, maybe a problematic part about tourism, because if you're coming to consume or experience a place and swimming is part of that experience you're expecting, like you go to Bondi, for example, that then actually you can't just look at it, you can't just sort of immediately become comfortable in that environment. It's got its own conditions, currents, rips and things like that, that you have to learn how to navigate, otherwise you're at risk of drowning. So. Teaching that and being aware of the risks, we still have that playing out that you do need to know how to swim or learn how to swim and you can't just literally jump back into it. Well, you can't, but there's an intrinsic risk to that. Yeah. Um, even if it's just a question of you may never, like your children, want to actually actively swim in a river, but you might fall in. That's a common way to drown as well as to go well, that's fishing right. and fall in.
1: But yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think that will be part of the consideration around whether we want to really open up and promote swimming in rivers. I've had a look at some of the signage. There's, it's um, saying that do not dive. Or, yeah, yeah.
0: That's a good, useful instruction. Some yes. of the signage is got. I mean, I'm been researching pool rules and signage and insurance issues around this. A lot of freshwater locations, particularly, will have a big sign that says either "Do not swim" or "Swimming not recommended." And even yeah. where, like, say, so for example, I was in Ballarat, of where I grew up actually a few weeks ago and swam in this place called Lake Esmond which is an old mine quarry it's a pretty good place to swim actually but and there are people swimming there doing laps and clearly they go there every day but there's a big sign that says swimming not recommended and partly it's because of that issue like for some people they're really not going to be able to the water's very deep it's quite cold in parts that kind of stuff so it's yeah. good advice you know maybe you should know what you're doing but it's also there because councils have gone through this process of questions about just how liable they are, what are the yep, insurance exactly. expectations of those locations, and they've decided or been advised we just have to put up at some saying don't swim because otherwise something's going to happen and we'll be held to account. And that relationship, I think, is problematic, actually, because it means that's what's been impacting Yarra Pools, for example, some of the insurance questions and the expectation that anything that's council-owned or government-owned, that therefore they're they're responsible and that's going to come with well primarily fences I think a small thing but a fence is actually required for a a public swimming pool because they have to open them you have to have the lifeguards because that's otherwise you're going to get sued the council might get sued if someone drowns but the fence then becomes visibly and in practical terms something that divides it's no longer like public space it's no longer something you just casually go and swim it's a it's fenced, it's secure, you might even have security guards, you can have hours, you might have entrance fees, all that kind of stuff. So that to me, I mean, I've been looking at some of these freshwater swimming locations and how they've, whether they've managed to navigate that. I mean, when you're looking at it as a point of view of insurance, insurance looks at risk and safety primarily like this could happen, someone could drown. Therefore, we need fences, we need locks, we need lifeguards and that totally makes sense in its own logic but then You kind of think of it as, or I think of it as, what if it's public space and people's relationship to space and how they're likely to visit or swim or look at these places? That is really different. And we think about a beach. A beach is a place you can and will drown. But imagine you had to go at only between three and six in the afternoon and had to go through a gate to do it because you could drown. Of course, the specifics around insurance there is that nobody built the beach. And that seems to be one of the subtleties around freshwater swimming as well. Like, If there's nothing actually built there, then nobody's responsible for it. But if you're starting to put up a diving platform or something, then that's you could sue somebody and different countries different jurisdictions even have found, found different solutions here but it's it's played around out around historical stuff so for example there used to be a thing called Hepburn Pool in Dalesford or Hepburn Springs it's not one I would be tempted to swim in I might add <laughs> it's quite grim looking but it was a little creek pool it was popular in the 1930s as this was sort of heyday of freshwater swimming actually and Australia and some other countries, but then went into decline. There were other facilities, similar decline as in Yarra, uh, Birrarong swimming. But by the 1990s, there was all this sort of art deco remnants of this pool and Counts Hepburn Shire was being advised that they needed to actually remove any trace of this place because there's still a possibility that someone would swim there and they'll sue them. And a few people were involved in managing to get through that in a different sort of way in the sense that they managed to get the the remains of the pool, the platforms and stuff, heritage listed, but there's still a big sign that says don't swim. And in that case, you probably shouldn't. I think it actually has problems with um, algae. But the motivation behind um, the heritage listing was to protect it from the forces that would otherwise shut it because of... um, Health and safety concerns, and another one I would add to that. Sorry, a particularly sort of when I talk about my interest in pools and the closure of pools, and and where the crossover with your work is. What's the possibility for reimagining swimming and river swimming and so on? People can also point to okay, the fact that some of these pools they really are they're expensive to maintain, and you you can't just keep them all open because they really do cost money, and maybe it's just sort of a natural decline, and the role of regulation insurance must be fairly minor in that yep. but an example i was thinking about thinking about how to respond to that is it's probably along a spectrum and maybe mapping out where different kinds of pools and swimming locations sit on this but buck and caves this i think just sits firmly in that this is just regulations camp so buck and caves is in gippsland east victoria what it is is it's a underground what do you call it a spring and it would turn into a tourist attraction in 1930s and amongst the tourist um, experience was visiting these the caves and the stalactites and things like that but there's also they built a stone cut out swimming pool that fed the water from the spring into a pool structure and that's been there since again 1920s 30s 40s that sort of period amazing looking pool it's only maybe 20 meters long but it's got that beautiful stone cut look about it the water is amazingly clear um, crystalline water and it's also amazingly cold so there's a bit of a culture there it's a popular campground and all teenagers in particular swim at this pool which is not doesn't have a lifeguard i think it's got a fence mainly for to stop toggles going there but it's it's free public space pool and you kind of get—I swam there once, and you get applauded when you jump in because it's so cold. So you're like, you did it. <laughs> I think it's probably about 16, 17 degrees. Anyway, this has been an active, actively used, popular facility for 80 or whatever years, and a couple of years ago it was shut down. They actually turned—they being, in this case, the parks department—they assessed this facility as being okay it's not just a river this is I'm not just a spring sorry this is actually a swimming pool under the health act and the specific regulations that apply to swimming pools and it's not meeting our standards for filtration and so not the safety side of it you needed to have chlor- chlorination and you need to have the water turning over at certain regularity because this is a health and safety risk the water might not be clean enough and uh, there was a campaign to stop this because it's been in use for so long. It's actually, it feels, it seems, at least to perception, cleaner than your average pool. Unsuccessful, as I understand it, the water was shut off two years ago and the pool's empty. And I think that's um, an example of a pool where it's suffered from being somewhere between natural and man-made. And it's fallen into this liminal space around legislation where it's just man-made enough to be regulated as such, and that makes it too hard and it's been closed down. But sort of natural enough that it's the fate, I guess, of the, the Sheppard and Raymond West pool that I spoke about as well, that this was a swimming lake and it wasn't a chlorinated, uh, reginated pool, and I love those kinds of pools, but it was somewhere in between. It was different kind of filtration system, different look people could access at different times, and it meant decades of just difficulty because you're almost a swimming pool and if you're almost a swimming pool then you're gonna have to meet all these kinds of standards and then you trans you either get shut down or you're gonna become one of those pools and they have their own they have their own issues because they are expensive to staff and maintain and then, you know, they have a life cycle. So after my spiel there we then talked a bit about Loretta's PhD research and the potential of getting involved in that and cutting some of that stuff out. Basically, Loretta is looking for participants for her research on uh, the tourism potential of regenerative approaches to the Birrarung, including a swimmable Birrarung.
2: Yara,
1: So I'm looking for people who are um, connected to the river in some way. And so they might be a tourism business operator, an active swimmer in the river, They might be someone from a community organisation that's uh, working, a resident group that's working around um, promoting the river. They might be a researcher who has an interest in this topic. And so they can contact me at my email, which is lbelato at swin.edu.au. And so I'll spell that out. It's L-B-E-L-L-A-T-O at at swin.edu.au.
0: And you're um, at the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne. That's
1: right. Swinburne University of Technology, Centre for Urban Transitions.
0: We're at the end of our discussion. So we can, uh, People that want to get in touch with Loretta, do that, participate. Perhaps you just want to share some some stories. About, and if, if they're not relevant to your research, pass them on to me, Loretta. But <laughs> although, for anyone who's out there interested in swimming, well, I, I'd suggest some. I've suggested before some freshwater spots in Victoria. I would recommend definitely Bright. The Gambia's not bad, actually. There's a lake in the Creswick, a few others. But uh, for those of you that are interested in swimming in the Yarra, Yarra, can anyone just turn up at Deep Rock? When do they meet there? Are we breaking some insurance rule by talking about this?
1: From my understanding, it's completely legal to swim there and it's a public place. There's no fences to get through you can just turn up at the deep rock picnic place and there's the steps there and you can enter the river from there and people are doing that it's part of the yarra main trail oh, yeah. uh, so you get yeah you walk past you can ride or walk past it and so and there's also a lot of people that swim up at warrandyte so if
0: people want to swim further up yeah there's different places along the river so deep rock is not from the squeamish i would say but Warrandyte, um, and if you go further up, to, out of Melbourne, what do you call that place? Warburton, where yes. the, the Birrarung starts, so to speak. It's uh, different. It's pebbly. It's shallow. But these are places where even people who aren't who are worried about urban dirtiness. It's that Yarra Birrung is incredibly beautiful and very inviting in those spaces. So maybe, and you could sort of someone, perhaps you Loretta could recreate this going up the river or down the river and kind of experiencing the different opportunities there from a swimming point of view, the subjectivity of swimming. Because if you started there and worked all your way down, you'd get a sense of all the different kinds of challenges and what the possibilities of somewhere really far down and urban are realistically or otherwise And just a a suggestion there is also around from the historical point of view and the imagination point of view. I read this book called News from Nowhere. Have you ever come across that? No. It's actually a novel by um, an early kind of science fiction novel called News from Nowhere by um, William Morris, who's I've looked up here, it was called Utopian Socialism and Soft Science Fiction, published in 1890. And it's this early time travel book where the guy starts off in London as it was then, just overwhelmingly disgusting place. And he somehow has that classic science fiction experience. He falls asleep or whatever. He wakes up and he's in the same place, but completely different. And he thinks, it's not the past, it's just a version of the future that's a bit more like the nice parts of the past. Things are clean, people aren't starving, all these kinds of hence the utopian socialism part of it. But the narrative structure of it is actually, he starts off by swimming in the Thames and thinking like, how can I possibly do this? Because I'll I'll get covered in stuff, but no, it's clean and everyone else is doing it. And then he travels up the Thames River. The process of seeing the river and how it's transformed um, in his imagination, in this case, from what it was to what it could be, is the way that he understands just how different this possible version of life would be notes from nowhere. Worth we'll a look up. Yeah, sounds uh, amazing.
1: Um, yeah, and that's not that's not unlike what we're trying to embark on with this project, reimagining how we can relate with the river and, and what what it could be.
0: Awesome. Well, it's been um, I've yeah. been out of practice with podcasting for a while. <laughs> Thanks for meeting with me, chatting with Thank me. Thank you. How it's been great experience? to chat. Likewise, everyone else, you've been listening to. Uh, reprisal <laughs> what's, what's the word you, regeneration of this must be the place podcast in this case I think it's only been 18 months you've been listening to Loretta Bellato from Swinburne University and Liz Taylor of Monash University and it's still summer so if you want to go out and have a, a swim you know now's your chance